two, three. Well, hi again. This is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Very excited to have our guest, Joe Goslin, on the show today. Joe, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me, Jason. And I should ask Joe or Joseph, which uh, Either way works. I'm fine. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I started with Joe and go with there and we're really excited to have Joe on the show today. He's got a great background really about starting out with uh, full-time employment, going from that to, to jumping into multifamily. He actually just closed on a 236 unit property. We we're just talking about a little bit off camera just about a month ago. So we're going to dive into that. But before we do talk a little bit about Joe, Joe's a multi-family investment specialist, a leading group of acquisitions of over 30 million in real estate, and that's fastly growing. Uh, he began real estate back in 2005 when he purchased their first investment property with his wife, Rita. And then in 2007, re relocated to Plano, Texas in early 2008, started their real estate investment firm and grew that portfolio and strengthened their acquisition equity positions in multifamily and single family properties. And then in 2015, Joseph uh, began his multifamily journey and not long after led his successful acquisition of 130 units in two properties in Lubbock, which fast forwards us today to the successful acquisition of a 236 unit in also the Lubbock community. Wow, this is awesome stuff, Joseph. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And let's jump back to 2005, because I see that at the same time you were in an IT role as a senior software developer. And you had had that, you're working this full-time job and somewhere along the line you said, well, let me look at real estate and jump into real estate. What was it that really jumped out to you? Yeah, so it was really, as many other investors reached that board at, right? I read the book, I said, that makes sense. I, I don't want to stay in this industry forever. Um, if you're in the software industry, you look around and there's no 60-year-old developers. Uh, so you, you realize that there's a clock ticking on you. It's a, it's a young people industry. And um, back at the time, uh, my wife and I just got married. We were living in a rental apartment that had like one bedroom, 600 square foot. It was cozy and enough for us. And then um, we bought a four-bedroom apartment because in Israel, it's all urban, right? So um, it, it's all apartments like think Brooklyn, right? So we bought one of those, but it was too big for us. We said, we don't have kids. It's just the two of us. We just read Reach That Poor Dad. So it made total sense to say, okay, let's rent it out and, and stay in the little one and enjoy the cash flow a little bit. And then... Once you start, once you see the cash flow come in, that is when, you know, it clicks. The, the light bulbs over your head go ding, and, and it's a love story since then. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's, it just goes to, to your, your temperament because today we, we see so many people guilty of buying bigger, overspending, and getting themselves out of their comfort zone. And to, to buy that four-family house at that time and then look at it as a way to just – increase your lifestyle even by staying at the same lifestyle kudos to you that's awesome and when you were doing that it it, it just were you watching others or or did it just occur to you that you know if i rent this out after after just this book that i could actually just improve my lifestyle which was it it was just accidental i didn't have a mentor i didn't have anyone uh back then the the, the online communities were not as um 
advanced as they are today, it wasn't that uh, obvious to you that you can go online and there's a bunch of people that can teach you about real estate, right? So uh, uh, it was just, if we go and live in this thing, it'll pretty much choke all of our funds, right? Uh, and most of the money will go on the mortgage and we'll have a place that is three quarters empty pretty much. Or do we just stay here where we are in, in our little cozy apartment and just rent it out and not only will somebody else will pay the mortgage we'll also get cash flow every month so uh, both of us are very logical person and uh, it was an easy decision and so you have that first one it's a huge success you love the model what comes next well i was blessed enough that in 2007 my workplace relocated here me here to the states and we land here and my wife and i look around and it's the big crash. And so what our big strength is that, and, and I feel, again, blessed that, that we had that realization, is that we didn't uh, ball into a corner, right, and, and, and say, no, it's a, it's a big crash. We're not going to go in. It was more like, oh, my God, it's a big crash. We're never going to see a market like this ever in our lifetime. Let's jump in. So we actually sold the property back home in Israel, moved the money over here and started our investment career in the States with, with the single family. And then obviously we both got licensed uh, um, just to get familiar with the American and, and the local Texas systems and how the rules are and get access to the MLS for our deals. So uh, um, it worked out really well for us. That's great. And how far did you go with the multifamily or the single family investments before you really started putting your eye onto multifamily? So honestly, we didn't go too far with the singles, right? We ended up with like four or five doors and um, then life happens, right? Certain career changes and, and then the kids came in and then all kind of things that kind of pull you out of, of focus. And I regret till today that I let it pull me out of focus. Um, and then fast forward to 2015, um, I, I had a moment of call it a crisis or a breakdown or whatever with my singles, right? Within a short period of about six months, I had to pay you dollars $45,000 in checks, right? So uh, we had a property with foundation issues. And <clears throat> excuse me, when you raise a 1970 house, all the cast iron plumbing was just held by the, the soil. Gravity. We raised yeah. that house, it all just crumbled. So we had to do complete new piping and on, the, on the plumbing there. We had a hailstorm. We had a water heater burst that took out the flooring. We had a garage door. And that's just one property. I had another property that needed a fence. I had another property that needed an AC unit. And I'm looking at my wife. That's not scalable. If we had 10 properties and they all needed something right now, that wipes away years of cash flow. And that's my main realization with single family is that everybody promises you cash flow and then you do. You cash flow for a year, two, three, four, five if you're lucky, and then something big happens, right? A roof, a water heater, a foundation, plumbing, something big comes in and then if you haven't built your reserve account, that's not going to be there for you and you're going to have to pull it out of your pocket. And, and that's going to be a problem for a lot of people. I don't know a lot of people that can cut $40,000 checks in six months, right, out of the blue. 
That's right. That's right. And so if you look at that, a lot of people, they have these monumental moments and they just give up. They throw their hands in the air and say, forget it. I, I'm done. I, I had this bad thing happen. And it seems like you get here during a crash and, and you find opportunity. You have all of this damage or we'll say almost a perfect storm happen with your properties just all in one year. And for you, you find the good out of that. Is that how, how you've always thought, okay, this has happened, but what can I gain or what can I learn from it? Has that always been your position? Well, it's more of, okay, this didn't work. What will work? Uh, And and I'm an engineer in training, so I'm wired to uh, put everything in an Excel file and, and research, right? So I looked at anything from non-real estate stuff like uh, commodities and, and oil and gas and gold and um, day trading and Forex and, and all that. And I looked at everything real estate. Um, I knew singles is not going to work for me anymore. So I looked at, <coughs> excuse me, land and um, uh, retail and medical and office and, and all kind of niche real estate and then I landed on multifamily, and from all those types, it was the one class that made the most sense to me. The one that failed felt safest of all of them because I'm very risk adverse, right? Um, so that's how I landed up on, on multifamily. So talk about that. What, what made it seem to be the safest asset class for you for maybe someone who's, who's now at that point and looking at jumping into real estate or doing maybe working in, in, in doing just flips or wholesales and is looking at another class, what stands out to you about multifamily? Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question and everybody needs to figure out two things. One, there's the safety aspect and we'll talk about that in a second, but first I want to start with why multifamily and why now, right? So um, we're in a, position right now to take advantage of a major generational shift. If you look at the United States population, we have what, 320, 330 million, give or take. Take away everybody over 80 and kids and teenagers, you end up with about 200 million, right? 220, give or take. Out of those 220, you have 77 million baby boomers, right? 76, 77 baby boomers. They're getting older, kids are out of the house, they're done with mowing the lawns and cleaning the gutters and fixing the dishwasher and paying the high utility bills on a 4,000 square foot home. They just want to downgrade and to be taken care of, right? So they have a strong preference over rent right now. They need to move next to the the grandkids and and they want to be able to travel where they couldn't before with the kids and all the other burdens that life brings to you when you have little kids, right? I see you smile. (laughs) And then um, on the other hand of that 76, 77 million, you also have 77, 78 million of millennials. And everybody talked about millennials already, right? They they like to travel. They like to move between uh, cities to follow the jobs. Um, A lot of them have huge student debt that even if they want to buy, they, they're not buying, right? They can't, nobody will give them a loan if they have $400,000 student debt, right? Um, and then lastly, a lot of them were teenagers back in 08 when they saw their families lose their jobs, lose their homes, right? So they're also traumatized really from, from the last crash. So they also have a strong preference to, to rent. So out of the 220, you have over 150 million that have a strong preference 
to rent or buy. So for me, it was a no-brainer, right? If everybody prefers to rent, then we need to give them something to rent. Yep. And, um, and, and multifamily is the right asset for that. It's one of the hardest things to disrupt, right? So you can um, go, walk to work, drive to work, fly to work, work from home. Doesn't matter what technology will come up to change that. You still need a place to sleep, right? You can call an Uber instead of a taxi. You can uh, um, do anything that technology can come in and disrupt. But at the end of the day, you still need a place to sleep. Yeah. So that's going to be the hardest thing to disrupt is, is the, the residential for rent industry. So, so that's the aspect of why multifamily and why now. The safety, the safety aspect comes in. Um, and I'm sorry if you want to squeeze in the question there because I kind of no, go ahead. It's great because people need to understand. It, it, it's it, there's a lot of talk. Like everybody wants to invest in multifamily now, but they're, it's the, the thought about why and why being for you, and then also why being for others really needs to be prevalent so you can really just make your best informed decision. So go on. Yeah, and and that's what I tell my investors. Right, it's kind of like there's a big shift. If you look historically on all the last recessions we had, 08 and 2000 and, and the early 90s, multifamily was the, class, the last class, asset class to get hurt and the first one to recover, right? And, and that's also a major something that um, helped me understand that this is a great asset to invest in. The other thing is when I own a single family home, right? And let's say I have a vacancy, the, 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 the resident moved out, and I need to find a new one. I'm paying the bills. I'm paying the mortgage. I'm paying uh, the real estate agent to release it if I use a real estate agent, right? I pay for everything. It's coming out of my pocket. So I have 100% risk. And there's always vacancy, right? You might be lucky and get a, 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 someone that will be in the house for three, four, five years. But the number of people that stay in a rental home for 20 years is not that big. Um, on a multifamily property, if I have 100, property, 100 units in the property, I can have 10 of them vacant. I still have enough money coming in from rent. The other 90, they pay for the mortgage. They pay for the, the on-site team salaries. They pay for the repairs and maintenance. And they pay enough that we can also pay our investors back. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so nobody has to pull money out of their own pocket into this thing once it's up and running. And, and that's really, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a big changer, right? It's a big game changer. Uh, the other thing is, um, so I, I've heard people say, well, then I'll just own 100 single families. Well, when you own 100 single families, you have 100 insurance policy, 100 property taxes, uh, bills that will come in. And if you're more aggressive than 100 of those to be protested, right? A hundred locations, you're going to have somebody drive around town to take care of those 100 properties versus I have one location, one insurance policy, one property tax to contest. Uh, And my people, when they need to get to unit J4, they walk from the shop to J4. I don't need to pay mileage. I don't need to get the car. I don't need to take the risk of um, them having an accident between the two houses. That doesn't exist. Yeah, so, logistical nightmare. So absolutely, absolutely. And so if we look at that from a multifamily side, how does that translate 
to your business model today? And, and I would touch on how do you source the markets you look for and what type of properties or multifamily properties you're looking for and what kind of team have you surrounded yourself with? Yeah, so we'll take it one by one. Sure. So when when searching for a market, the one the number one thing that we search for is jobs. Where are the jobs? Where are they gonna? Where are these people gonna work? What's the economic economic drivers of of the city that we're looking at, or the market that we're looking at? Um, how did that market behave in 06, 07? And what happened if a black swan event happened? Right, so if you go into a, a smaller town that has one employer, and, and an example for that is I saw a property in a smaller town in Oklahoma, and but eighty percent of the the population were employed in a meat factory. Well, guess what? A tornado came in and destroyed the facility. That owner had insurance; he was covered. But now you have 80% of the, the town has no jobs. So, so you can't be super dependent on one employment or one industry. Uh, um, I know there's a lot of people or a lot of investors that shy away from uh, military uh, um, surrounding towns like Killeen, Texas, and, and um, others where it's mostly about the base. And when there's a big deployment, now you're stuck with a lot of vacancies and a lot of people that don't have jobs. So, uh, um, so these are things that we try to look around and try to figure out where are the jobs coming from and how sustainable are they? Is there a good percentage you use as a barrier for how much of a sector you'll allow in a certain market? Um, no, not really, because it's, it's about the story the market tells, right? So we're heavily invested in a market called uh, Lubbock, Texas, it's a secondary market in Texas, but it's the home of Texas Tech, the university. They have over 37,000 students. They grow all the time. Um, but we don't do student housing. We do workforce housing, right? And we'll talk about that in, in the rest of your questions. Right. Uh, but the idea is for every four or five students that the university adds, there's another job in town because those students need to be taken care of. Bars, restaurants, uh, uh, cleaning services, dry cleaning, uh, medical, and so on. So um, that university alone sustains over 13,000 uh, jobs in town. But they're not the only big dog in town, right? So even though they do show as a one of the major employers in town, first of all, universities don't walk away that easy, right? That's one thing. The other thing is they're not the only big dog in town. So that's why we love that story. We love that town and why we invested so heavily in that town. Um, <clears throat> so to your question, there is no a percentage. It's about understanding your model, business model, right? We're not doing student housing. We're doing workplace housing and understanding how the dynamic in the city works to help your business model, right? So right now, Lubbock is at 2.7, 2.8 unemployment rate, which is one of the lowest in the state. Right. So there is a story behind it. And that's why I don't like getting stuck on numbers. I want to understand the full picture. Gotcha. Fair, fair. I, I'll, I'll take that one time from an engineer that doesn't like, doesn't want to get stuck in the numbers, but that's, no, I'm just kidding. You, you got to be able to step up and look at the big pictures, right? So for example, um, Huntsville, Alabama, 
right? One of the best kept secrets in, in, in the country right now. But Toyota announced a $1.6 billion factory going out there in the next few years. Mm-hmm. And right after that, a few major employers announced they're going to come in as well. The problem is in this town, there is no inventory. So you'll see a lot of developers going out there right now and start building. So that's the kind of thing that if you look at Huntsville, Alabama with the numbers right now, it does not make sense to go and develop out there. But if you look at Huntsville, Alabama with the perspective of, oh, Toyota is going to bring $1.6 billion factory in there, going to generate this many thousands of jobs, now it makes a lot more sense to go and develop in Huntsville, Alabama, right? So that's why we always try to figure out uh, what's the story of the market, right? What is coming in, uh, what has been announced, what has not been announced, and, and try to make our decisions with the full picture in mind, not just this benchmark or that benchmark. That's great. And you, you touched a little bit about that you don't focus on student housing. What, what is your core focus? Okay, that, that's really where I was heading to is um, multifamily apartments have classes, right? A, B, C, D, and anything in between. Uh, the easiest way to look at it is A is the most beautiful, brand new uh, apartment complex that was built last year or this year, right? Uh, B is the A class of about 10 years ago, right? It's a little bit older, still very nice looking, mostly composed of young professionals and, and, and uh, younger people at the start of their uh, corporate career. C-class is where you have your hardworking family. We call it workforce uh, um, communities. It's hardworking. It's the people that work at retail and restaurants and automotive uh, uh, industries that are um, working hard. They have jobs, but their salaries are not too high. Uh, um, but they still deserve a great place to live in. And then D-class is what we call in the industry war zones. Right? It's the place where there's a lot of drugs and, and crime and unsafe neighborhoods. Uh, so when you look at all those at that spectrum, we like to stay in the B and C class. And the reason we like the B and C classes is that when the economy is doing great, D upgrades to C, C upgrades to B, B upgrades to A, A buys house, right? When the economy does the other way, when the economy tanks, A downgrades to B, B downgrades to C, C downgrades to D, right? So no matter what happens to the economy, staying in the middle over there in the B and C class bands will pretty much guarantee that you will have new prospects all the time. So that's really why we like the B and C bands. And um, we like to build communities. Our philosophy is not come in, pay rent, and be quiet, right? It's more of welcome home. Right, we don't call our residents tenants. We call them residents. We don't call we we don't say we own apartment complexes. We own we generate communities, and we do events and we try to get the the residents to talk to each other. We get the residents to talk to us. Um, we have a really strong uh, referral program, and that's really because all the statistics and all the benchmarks show that residents that feel connected. Residents that talk to each other, that know their neighbors, residents that will bring their friends and families. They'll walk around and say, hey, come live in my community. And both those residents and the one they bring in stay longer. And in multifamily, especially on the operation side, 
retention is the key for profitability. And if you could talk a little bit more to community, because that, that's amazing. And just it, setting the mindset right with your team. So the way they think about it is not just, just tenants and property. And then also now creating events. What, what are some other things you're doing to create that community atmosphere? Because I think that's really important. And especially what you're talking about, tenant retention, I, that, that's, the turnover is just the killer for, for your complex. So if you can keep them there yeah. longer and make them happy, everybody wins. Exactly. Uh, so we do multiple events. We just did a huge pool party uh, on one of our properties. And we try to, uh, we have a popcorn machine in the office, right? So we send a flyer to all the residents saying, hey, when the kids come back from school, send them in for some popcorn, right? And then they come in and they light up. And, and they, uh, um, when, when that kid lights up, when he gets the popcorn, you can see the mom behind him light up right as well. Right, and and if the tenants come, and they, not the tenants, the kids come home and they tell the the mom, "Oh, mom, it's so great! I got popcorn." They're happy, right? That generates a connection to the to the community. Um, other things that we do would be um, every once in a while we'll send one of our leasing agents or our community manager out to where everybody drives off from the property in the morning and just hand out donuts. And you just have a great day. Here's a donut. Right? And, and we get great reactions from these things. And, and we try to do our best. Uh, we had a, uh, a slab leak, right? Which means we had to shut down water to a few of the buildings, uh, unfortunately, for more than one day. It was just a big, uh, uh, complicated uh, thing to solve. So we could have just told them, yeah, sorry, we got to do what we got to do. But instead, we told them we're, we apologize, but we also, we got them water bottles and we did a breakfast for them and we did a dinner for them, right? It's kind of like, yes, we're sorry, it's not in our control, but we'll do everything we can to make your life a little bit easier with this going on. Um, so, so stuff like that. And then uh, we just took over, like you mentioned, uh, a 236 unit and we brought everybody into the office, but not only the team from this property, we brought all of the team from all of our other properties in town and we told them, look, this is one big family right now. Gotcha. We don't operate as, as single ships in the dark. This is a fleet that works all together. And if you get stuck on something, right, and the, the lead maintenance guy is stuck on something, call the lead maintenance guy on the other property because another fresh set of eyes might get you out of that problem. He might know or encounter something that you have never encountered before. Um, we also tell them, look around you. The people that live in those units are the ones that pay your salary. It's not us. It's them. So just like when you walk into a, a JCPenney and an associate sees you, they say, hey, how are you? Can I help you find something? Right? Uh, um, how can I help you today? We told them, we expect you to do the same thing when you walk in the, on the property and you see a resident, hey, good morning. Can I help you with something today? But even if they have nothing to ask for, right, that feeling that you get noticed, you get recognized, and you're asked if they can help you, that goes a long way. So um, that's really what we try to convey to our team on the ground. It's important. It's the relationship that we want to build with our residents. That's amazing. And when you, when you talk about we, 
besides the maintenance people, you're talking about we as a team taking over these properties. Who who are you talking about? And we don't need specific names or like how is your team built up on the, on the high level for management? So we have a third party management company that runs our properties for us. Um, but we have been working with them so closely that it's really, uh, it feels part of one team. Right? They share our philosophy. We're constant in communication. Um, they're at that <coughs> sweet spot of not too small to be regional and, and um, not effective um, and, and no resources, but they're not too big that you're just another client. Right? If I need to pick up the phone and get the owner of the company on the line, she will pick up my call. You know, you touch on this and this is super important because you hear constantly, I can't find a management company or I can't find one that aligns with my values. What, what, is, what is your process for finding a, a management company that, that meets your core needs and understand your values? Do you have some tips or some questions you ask from the outset that, that help you stage whether or not this is going to be a great fit? Yeah, so, so really I interviewed quite a few of them at the beginning and it was never about me telling them what my values are. It was more about me asking them what their value is, how they run the properties. And, and, it's a, and you got to find the one that aligns with what you prefer, right? Um, but still, I, I look at it as hiring a third-party management does not mean you can give, hand over the keys and forget about it. That's not going to work. Uh, you need to look at it as coaching an Olympic athlete. Uh, that, that's just the way I look at it. Every Olympic athlete have a coach. They're at the top 0.001% right, of, of athletes in their profession, but they still have a coach. Can the coach run faster, throw the ball longer, yeah. swim further? No. But what a coach brings in is perspective. It's outside-the-box thinking. It's accountability. Right? And that's what we bring to the table as asset managers when we work with our third-party property management, right? So when we talk about a team, usually on site, we'll have maintenance people at the various levels. We'll have leasing agents and at least one community manager um, for every community. And then they have a regional supervisor and there's obviously a whole back office of the property management that handles the vendors, the suppliers, the accounting, the check-in, and, and so on. And then <clears throat> me, as an asset manager, I work with um, our supervisor. I work with the corporate office of the property management, including the owner. And then every once in a while, I also have interaction with the on-site community manager. Um, and that usually happens when we get to touch points with the residents, right? So... Um, we, uh, for example, last Christmas, we wrapped a few gifts and we sent it over so she can hand it out to residents. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, no problem. And it, this is invaluable information about working with the property management and also just treating people like a community. And if you, if you're looking at your overall business model and the type of properties you're coming on, are you using syndication for this? Yes, for most of our communities, we have syndicated. What would you suggest is a great way to, to keep investors 
in the loop so they understand what's happening and, and like how do you keep contact with investors throughout the life of the hold of the property? So that's an interesting uh, question because on one hand, we want to communicate with them. We want to get them engaged. On the other hand, most of them invest in syndications because they just want to check in the mail every quarter. Yeah. They don't want too much details. So it's gotta, you got to find the right balance with the investors. Um, and um, we try to engage them at least quarterly, usually in the first year, more than that. Yeah, sorry. No, and, um, Take a minute, let me know. Um, and uh, uh, we also engage them in things like picking a name. So when we rebrand the property, we do a survey with our investors and say, hey, these are the options that we were thinking. What do you like? What rings well to you? We also did in some of the properties uh, um, a survey to help us pick a logo because we had a few really good options we couldn't decide between. So we handed over to the investors to make a decision. So uh, we try to keep them engaged uh, uh, as much as they're willing to be engaged. Yeah, you're absolutely right. right? We send out you know, our, our monthly or quarterly investor emails and lots of times it's crickets. And I'm like, is this email going through? And so sometimes they're like, did you get my email? They're like, yeah. Okay, good. Okay, good. So I know it's going out there and we're just not getting, not getting anything back, but that's absolutely right. And I think engaging them for, for the process of, you know, the things about the name and the logo that that's a lot of fun and a very interesting topic to, to really push out there is your business model for what you've done or what you're doing so far. Is it going in there and, and changing the vibe, changing the community, changing, changing the logo, the name and doing value adds that, that go with unit turns or, or is there some other aspect where you're taking on heavier rehabs? So usually we'll have always had a, a management play, right? Picking up properties that were um, not as efficiently managed as we can. And there's always been a rehab component. Some were lighter than the others, but uh, um, always have some kind of a value add component. So between the management play and the rehab play, usually we're able to bring a little bit more value to our investors. That's great. And you just get this 236 unit property in a time where everybody and their mother saying, I can't find deals. So what, what is the ninja trick that you use that you're able to, to find this magical property that nobody else can find? So there is no ninja trick. There is just brute force. Yeah. So you just got to work the relationship and get as many deals in front of you as possible so you can filter down to the right ones. Um, it's not that every deal like that, that I see is good. My actual record or, or my actual benchmark is about 201. So for every 200 deals that I see, and I'm not looking at deals from uh, um, the big brokers, right? The ones that get on a big email blast, that's not even counted. So for every 200 deals that come across my desk, about 150 of them will fall on the smell test, right? You do enough of those, you can look at the OM and say, there's so many rainbows and lollipops here, I can't even see the property, right? And then, yeah. um, uh, but 50 of them go into our Excel files. We have really, really strict criteria, so we don't take anything lightly. Out of the 50, we'll have about five that we'll be able to make offers on that are worth making offers on, and about one of them will close. So that's our ratio, about 200 to 1. It's not magic. It's not a trick. It's just brute force. Uh, what I've learned is 
97% of the people out there will just not put the time and effort to go through 200 in order to get to one. That's great. And when you look over these properties and, and you find this, now you look at, you just had this 236 unit. Are you continuing to be in acquisition mode or does each time that you find a property, you now work on that property before you find the next? So you can't let the pipeline dry out. Right. If I need to go through 200, it's going to take a while. And law of replacement says if I went through 100 and found one, now I need 300 to find the next one. Right? Because the other 100 statistically are not going to work. And now I'll need another 200 to find the next one. Right? So that's why we keep the pipeline going. We keep our relationship with the brokers going. Um, the best, the best description I ever give to this industry is a snowball on a roller coaster. Right? It's, it's, that's just that's the way this industry works. It, it's a snowball because the more you do, the more you get. The more opportunity will come across your desk. And when we closed the last 236 units a few weeks ago, uh, um, it, it's like another door just opened that I've never seen before. And now I get access to a lot more things we crossed the 500 units barrier. People start talking to us on a different level. And then um, another thing that, you know, the, the people that haven't gotten there yet still will learn is that once you cross the $10 million loan amount, they get really nice to you. <laughs> so that's a, it's just a different way these lenders treat you once you cross the, 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 $5 million, the $10 million loan. Uh, and then... Uh, so, so we keep our relationship going, and then the roller coaster aspect of it is you can spend two months looking and find nothing, and all of a sudden you have three hundred contracts. Yeah, and you got to figure you got to right. figure out what you're gonna do with them. And you're talking about the loans. It's really funny. My my partner was like, you know, I, I just had more headache trying to refire my single family house than we did on a 94 unit apartment building. <laughs> it's like, explain that to me. I was like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems it seems agonizing, but that's the truth. Yeah, so, it's like going through a cavity search, right? When, when you do the the request loan, but the non request loans are a lot easier to get through. And you look at your your business now as a whole, where, where does it go over the next five years? What kind of trajectory are you looking for? So we're at a little over 500 units right now. The goal has been and still is to cross the 1,000 units by the end of the year, awesome. uh, which means we need at least one or two large enough uh, uh, opportunities to come across our desk between now and the end of the year. Um, but uh, 5,000 in three years, and so on. So uh, we have pretty aggressive goals and we're going after them. Love it. I love it. So we're going to transition to a couple short form questions here. Do, do you have, in terms of this, people think 5,000 units, 500 units, and it's just, it can be so out there for them. Do you have a morning routine or, or to your schedule that, that you put in there to help get your mind right to start the day? Um, so I, Go to the gym every morning. I started that just a few months ago. But really, what you need is perseverance. What you need is the willing to sacrifice, right? Most people don't make it in this business because they're not willing to skip that uh, Game of Thrones episode. They're not willing to skip an hour of sleep. That's really what it is. I got 
my first acquisition, which was 22 units, and I got my second acquisition, which was 102 units, all while being fully employed uh, as a senior manager that had 26 developers underneath him, right? And then I got my third acquisition, which was 97, under contract still while employed. We closed after I quit my job, but uh, uh, I got it under contract while I was still employed. So really, it's doable. It's possible. Yes, it's painful. Yes, there's sacrifice at the beginning, but you sacrifice the short-term for the long-term benefits. That's awesome. And if you you look at everything you've learned, if you were to today be just starting as a new real estate investor, what would be one actual step that you would take today to get started for someone out there who maybe, maybe is on the fence and, and hasn't taken action? So two things, right? If, if I could go back in time, right, to my 2008 self, and let's say I'm not allowed to tell myself it's the bottom by whatever you can, okay? Let's take this off the table for a second. Then I would tell myself, skip the singles, go straight to multifamily. I can tell you that I'm pretty certain that if I had the technical knowledge that I have today, back in 2008, I'd be crossing the 5,000 units by now long gone. Yeah. Right? So, so that's really where... Uh, um, I, that's the first thing I would tell myself, skip the singles, right? It, it's not what the education uh, um, paid. And then the second thing that I would tell if somebody comes up to me and say, okay, what do I need to do right now in order to get X amount of units property by the end of the year? Well, you got to focus on two things, right? And it's basically the same thing. It's all about building relationships, right? But in two different channels, you got to build relationship with brokers around you got to build relationship with investors around you. That means you walk around, you tell everybody, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm looking for this. And know exactly what you're looking for. Right? And don't look for unicorns. Right? As, as, I'm also a licensed broker. If somebody calls me and says, hey, I'm looking for a B class in an A neighborhood on a 10 cap. Like, okay. When you find that unicorn, get me too. Yeah. Okay, so be realistic about the market you live in. Be realistic about what you're looking for. Um, build the relationship with the brokers. There is a human being on the other end. It's not just a machine that sends out emails, right? So, so get into that relationship because uh, here's the dirty sick secret of, of real estate brokers, right? They all have an investor's database, a buyer's database. And when a property comes in, First, they're going to make a few phone calls to their close buyers, the people that have done business with them in the last year or so, and the people that have been in contact with them in the last few weeks. Then it's a blast to the database, right? So it's very simple. If you're not constantly on their mind, you're going to get it with everybody else. So build that relationship. And on the investor side, this is a, a lesson that I learned in my first syndication. Do not wait until you have a property on the contract. That is one of the biggest mistakes most first-time syndicators do. It's kind of like now you put in a stress on yourself that in 30 or 45 days, you got to figure out how you raise, let's say, a million dollars from people that have never heard about multifamily and never heard that you're doing multifamily. So... 
that's pretty much the advice I would give a new guy. And that's absolutely tremendous. And, and that is, that really hits home. I know that point right there. Cause I, and I hear this a lot. How, how do you, how do you, I don't want to jump too far back in topic because I want to be respectful of your time. But if you're a new investor who's raising money for multifamily, but you haven't done a deal, what would be one suggestion to, to talk to investors without really having that track record? Well, you got to lean on somebody's experience, right? So in my case, I had a smaller one that I bought by myself, but it was pretty new. Uh, what I leaned a lot is on my team, right? My my property management company, 37 years of experience, right? I was able to leverage their experience and my abilities, right? My track records with singles or or just people that knew me because, again, most first-time syndicators will do what we call a friends and family round, right? A 506B. So most people would know you and they're not going to invest in the deal. They're going to invest in you. So it's important that they know you, that they know you're going to do this, and that they trust you because if they don't trust you, they're not going to give you a dollar even if you tell them that this thing is going to make 100% ROI in two months. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thank you for that. And it, it, you're exactly right. Use your track record. Use what you've done, even if it's not real estate related, just to show your trust factor and that you do what you say. And that's really the importance. If you're going to raise money from others, you have to be respectful of those investors and exactly do what you say. So yeah. that's great. And this has been an awesome podcast. I've learned a ton. And if there's a way for investors or listeners or others to find out more about what you're doing and connect with you, what would that be? Uh, just our website. It's the easiest way to find us. Um, it's five letters, ebgtx.com. So E as in elephant, B as in boy, G as in George, T as in Tom, X as in x-ray.com. Awesome. Joe, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time today. And again, thank you for everyone who's listening. And this is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Thank you so much to Joseph Goslin. And thank you so much for listening. Have a great Thank day. Thank you. Bye now.